Well, I invite you now to open up the Bibles that you've brought from home or the Bibles that you find in front of you to our selection for today, and it comes from the Revised Common Lectionary Gospels text out of the book of Mark. We begin at chapter 7, reading selected verses, 1 to 8, 14 to 15, and then 21 to 23. Now, when the Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him, that is Jesus, they noticed that some of his disciples were eating with defiled hands, that is, without washing them. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they thoroughly wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. And they do not eat anything from the market unless they wash it. And there are also many other traditions that they observe, the washing of cups, pots, and bronze kettles. So the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not live according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And Jesus said to them, Isaiah prophesied rightly about you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrines. You abandon the commandment of God and hold to human tradition. Then he called the crowd again and said to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going in can defile, but the things that come out are what defile. For it is from within, from the human heart, that evil intentions come. Fornication, theft, murder, adultery, avarice, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, pride, folly. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have you washed your hands? A question routinely asked of children around the dinner table all over the world. And it's the question that is at the very center of our passage for this morning. Now, it's, it's, it's helpful to, to dig into what exactly it was they were talking about and why it was so important to them. It was this issue, this issue of, of purity. Now, the issue of, of purity of, or being ritually pure in this day was directly tied to one's ability to be able to function within the community, to be able to to be with your family even, to be with your spouse, your children, much less your neighbors. Remaining pure or becoming ritually pure mattered. Any one of you who has had to quarantine for any amount of time during this pandemic can relate to just how challenging isolation can be. Separation from the community. And so there was a word used to describe the set of beliefs that governed how the Jewish community in Jesus' day would live. It was this word called halacha. Can you say that with me? Halacha. It wasn't as good as 8.30. Let's do that one more time. Halacha. Halacha, or halakhic tradition. 
literally translated, it meant the way to behave. And at this time, halakhic tradition governed the way of life for Jewish people, and, and much of it was built around an understanding of, of what it meant to be ritually pure. And, and while the, the, the time of Jesus, this interpretation was, as Mark writes, an oral tradition, we have a pretty good idea of exactly what this would have been. You see, these oral traditions of the Pharisees from this second temple period, the time when Jesus was, was preaching and teaching and apparently not washing his hands, they were actually written down in the early third century. They were written down out of a fear that these traditions of the elders that the traditions of the Pharisees would be lost forever. And so this, this document of written halakhic tradition is called the Mishnah. Now stay with me. The Mishnah is, is a multi-volume set. You can purchase one today, and, and on your bookshelf, it might look something like an encyclopedia. And it's broken up into six volumes or parts and each part or each order is made up of sections referred to as tractates. Each tractate is further broken into chapters and each chapter into its composite paragraphs. The largest of these six volumes, these six orders, was called the Toharat. And the Toharat dealt with what topic? It dealt with purity. Now, the Toharat had 12 sections. It had 12 tractates. It was the most of any of the orders. And so it is that this halakhic tradition, ultimately written down in the Mishnah, to which Mark is alluding to here in chapter 7. Now, it's interesting to read here in chapter 7. Mark actually explains what it is that he is talking about, why the washing of hands might be a problem. And it's parenthetical. If you read in verse 3, he writes, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they thoroughly wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. And they do not eat anything from the market unless they wash it. And there are also many other traditions that they observe, the washing of cups, pots, and bronze kettles. Here the end of that again. There are also many other traditions that they are observing. The washing of cups, pots, and bronze kettles. It's easy. It's easy for us to just let that slip by, to read quickly and move on to Jesus' response. But I want to underscore here just how many other traditions we're talking about. To give you an idea of the specificity with which this was handled, I'm going to read you one passage. I'm going to read you one passage from the Toharat, the volume on purity, from one of the tractates or sections in the Toharat called the Kelim. And the Kelim and all of its 30 chapters concerned containers. So here, one paragraph from 30 chapters within a tractate on containers. Vessels of wood, vessels of leather, vessels of bone, or vessels of glass. If they are simple, they are clean. If they form a receptacle, they are unclean. If they were broken, they become clean again. If one remade them into vessels, they are susceptible to impurity henceforth. Earthen vessels and vessels of sodium carbonate are equal in respect of impurity. They contract and convey impurity through their airspace 
They convey impurity through the outside, but they do not become impure through their backs. And when broken, they become clean. Get it? Me neither. But the point is, the point is, it was detailed. And this Mishnah, it it governs all ways of living and behaving. And I've got a hard enough time keeping up with the CDC's definitions of close contact and when to quarantine. And, And quite frankly, they do a pretty good job of making it clear. But how did the Jewish people get here? Where and why did they come up with all of this? Well, it's based, it's based on the purity laws that we find in the book of Leviticus. It all, all of it, has scriptural basis. I want to read to you this passage from Leviticus chapter 10, verses 10 and 11, just two verses. And here God is speaking to Moses' brother Aaron. Aaron is the head of the priestly order, the Levites. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, the pure and the impure, and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them through Moses. It all stems from these two verses. New Testament scholar William Lane writes, Oral tradition later written down in the Mishnah, examined virtually every aspect of personal and corporate life and and sought to regulate it in a manner consistent with the law. However, he goes on to say, they did so, the, the Pharisees, under conditions often vastly different from those in which the law was first handed down. In areas where the law was silent, the tradition was vocal, drawing the conclusions that they felt to be implicit in the text. In other words, when there was no rule, they figured one out. They made one up. Now, the Pharisees also took laws of purity out of context. Those that were, that were intended only for the priestly order They made them the expectation for all. And and you can see their logic. Well, if it's good for the priests to do all this, how much better if we all do it? And we could stand to learn something from their earnestness to be holy. We could learn something from this. And it, it was born in many ways out of a desire for right living, out of a desire to honor God, out of a desire to be holy. But at some point, like a bad game of telephone, you get so far removed from the heart of God that all you're left with is human tradition. All you're left with is a book full of rules. So what? What do we do with this today? How, how does this history help us. Jordan Peterson is a Canadian psychologist, author, and controversial figure. But he says this about the way that we ought to read the history of the world. 
He says we ought to read the history of the world as if we were the perpetrator as opposed to the victim or the noble intervener. We should read history as though we were the perpetrator as opposed to the victim or noble intervener. He explains it in this way. He says, take the movie Schindler's List for example. If you're not familiar with the story, Schindler's List is the true story of a German businessman, Oskar Schindler, who saves numerous Jews who are in danger of being murdered as a part of the Nazis' final solution to what they term the Jewish problem. Peterson says, when we watch Schindler's List, we typically imagine that we would have acted as Oskar Schindler, the hero, or, or perhaps Perhaps we put ourselves in the role of the victims. Rarely, if ever, do we imagine ourselves as one of the Nazis, one of the perpetrators, when the reality is that the overwhelmingly, excuse me, that the overwhelming majority of people simply went along with what the Nazis were doing. They were not the heroes. The heroes are the exception, and we are not, by the very definition of the word, typically the exception. And so in reading Mark's gospel, in reading Mark's gospel, we probably ought not to read the story as if we were one of the disciples, and we are certainly not Jesus. Rather, we are the Pharisees. We are the other Jews following the laws of man and not the commandments of God. So to think that sitting here today that we have finally gotten it all right would be hubris. To to believe that Christianity is finally interpreting this all correctly would be extreme overconfidence and folly. Just think of Christian interpretations of Scripture in just the last hundred years. How about the belief that baptism is required for salvation? I've heard horrific stories of parents in hospitals being told their stillborn child is unredeemable because they were never baptized? How about the church's teachings that divorced people cannot be members of the church? How about women being excluded from leadership? We could name others. The list goes on, and I'm guessing we could name some that we would not agree upon. What are our implicit interpretations of God's law? Our human traditions that we have since made non-negotiable, that we have codified as commandments of God, that we have codified as representative of the heart of God. Because we do this both individually and corporately anytime we take a derivative purpose and make it the main purpose of Christ's mission. Take something as innocuous as church growth, for example. Church growth is a derivative purpose. It was never intended to be the main thing. But if we are all about church growth above all else, we've missed the point. 
Jesus Christ's last meeting with his disciples before the cross wasn't a marketing meeting on the next five things to do to grow the church. It was the Passover meal and a washing of feet. Jesus demonstrated what it looked like to be the church, to worship God, to serve others. And then Jesus said, do this. So how do we read Scripture then? How do we learn to live as God intends? Well, it begins by doing so open-handedly, which is so hard. I love solving a problem once. If you see me walking around the church, the chances are you will see me with this pen in my pocket. Well, not this exact one, but this pen. The Zebra F301. It's the best pen ever made. It's easy to write with, it doesn't smear, you can write in the margins, and it's affordable. I discovered it some years ago, and now it's the only pen I use. I've solved that problem. I chew one brand and one flavor of chewing gum. I like it, and I don't need to risk buying one that's no good. I wear the same brand, cut, and style of work pants in two alternating colors. That's it. They look good, problem solved. I get wanting to figure it out. I get wanting to solve the problem once. Tell me what I need to do to just do it right. The problem is that when it comes to issues of faith, the Word of God is not a problem to solve. Now don't misunderstand me. God is immutable. God is unchanging, ever the same. But the Word of God is alive. The Word of God is alive. It is organic. It is on the move. And it is not a problem to solve. And when we close the door on interpretation, we begin to ossify God's living Word. We become stuck. Because be clear, Jesus is not saying that the Word of God does not matter. Jesus' call is not away from the Word, but rather a call away from human tradition and onto a path that leads to the heart of God. Jesus says defilement, impurity, it's real. It just happens differently than what you are teaching. Jesus sharpens the need for purity. He doesn't do away with it, but he points to us as the culprits of impurity and not the victims. Hear this passage as we close this morning. For it is from within, from the human heart, that evil intentions come. Fornication, theft, murder, adultery, avarice, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, pride. All these things come from within. It is us and not the thing that makes us impure. It's not the lack of hand washing. You see, Jesus removes every excuse that we might find for our sinful behavior. The alcohol made me do it. 
did you see what she was wearing? How could I not respond? Did you hear how he spoke to me? Jesus removes every excuse and puts the responsibility on our shoulders for our behaviors. And so it is a matter of what is in our hearts. And so rather than being a group of people worried about how much we need to wash our hands, perhaps we start asking the question that Jesus seems to be far more concerned with. Do our behaviors demonstrate a love for God? And do they demonstrate a love for our neighbor? I want to challenge you to ask yourself that this week. As you go about your week, how do your behaviors, your choices, the ways that you spend your time, how do they equip you to love God? How do they equip you to love your neighbor? Halakhic tradition is referred to as the way to behave. More literally, it's referred to as the way to walk. The Jewish followers appropriately referred to followers of Jesus as followers of the way. Followers of Jesus's halak. So friends, are we going to be a church that desperately seeks God's heart? Or will we waste our time asking one another when do we wash our hands? Can we learn to say yes to the way of Jesus? Loving God. Loving neighbor. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.